Hey folks, it's Phoebe here and it's episode 7 of Not About Food. This episode is with Jason Wood, who is the creator of orthorexiabites.com. On his website you can find out all about orthorexia and his experiences through his blog, plus resources about the disorder and where you can get help to recover. He has also just announced he'll be publishing a book all about his journey, so check out his website and Twitter for more info on that. You'll be able to see those in the description. On a side note, I know separate from this podcast, or at least I hope separate from this podcast, (laughs) there is criticism of people saying EDs aren't about food, because when you live with one, your life can literally revolve around food heavily, and I say that is true for me you know I used to look at pictures of food for hours on end and look at recipes and yeah I was utterly obsessed so in some respects it was about food even if the root issue wasn't but you know I've considered the fact that we've actually not talked about food much on the podcast so far so I'm kind of torn um this has made me question whether the name of the podcast should be changed so if you have any thoughts on this, please get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at notaboutfoodpod or email notaboutfoodpod at gmail.com. As always as well, I would really appreciate it if you could share and rate on Apple Podcasts, review, just anything to help us get this podcast out there. Here is my chat with the brilliant Jason Wood. Please see the show notes for content and trigger warnings. Thank you. Hello, it is episode seven of Not About Food, and I'm here with Jason from Orthorexia Bites. And to no surprise, we're going to be talking about orthorexia today. <laughs> so admittedly, I have decent knowledge of eating disorders in general, and obviously I've got my own experience, but orthorexia is not one I have as much knowledge about as potentially other manifestations of eating disorders. So that will be my go-to first of all Jason if you want to talk about what orthorexia is and just fill fill people in yeah so I myself really had no idea what orthorexia was until months into recovery I didn't even realize I was dealing with this battle but what orthorexia is is it's basically an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating so in my case I was pretty much addicted to clean eating uh, organic produce organic food items just in general, Uh, everything, it was kind of my driving force behind the eating disorder was to just eat clean and to eat healthy. Uh, I wasn't as concerned as much about weight. It's more so you're just concerned about being pure, about being clean. A lot of times the fad diets that we hear about nowadays, such as Whole30 or keto, those can actually be the slippery slope into orthorexia because you start to label foods good or bad based upon usually their nutritional contents. Uh, A lot of times the macros and people with orthorexia, what happens is they tend to start to add more foods to the bad list and fewer foods are on their good list. And over time, they just start cutting out uh, different food groups. So in my case, uh, carbohydrates, that was one big area where I kind of, I had a fear. It was an anxiety around eating those types of foods. So it wasn't necessarily in my case about losing the weight. I was just more concerned about being as healthy as I could be. And uh, that seems to be a tendency with a lot of orthorexics out there. Yeah, for sure. So have you been able to pinpoint what kind of 
set you on that path? Was it like a named diet like keto, which I am bombarded with online constantly? Yeah. Did you have what started out as something fairly innocent before you got obsessed with it? Yeah, I did. So um, I I had grown up overweight and uh, lost a lot of weight back in high school. So I had always kind of clung to taking care of myself of dieting and stuff as something that I was good at. And uh, as I was approaching my wedding a couple years ago, uh, which it's crazy that it's already been a couple years ago, it seems like just yesterday, but I was trying to just kind of get in shape for the wedding. And around that same time, I was, I came very close to uh, developing colorectal cancer, which is the same thing that my dad had passed away from years before. And that kind of just, it scared me. So I wanted to eat as clean and as healthy as I could. So I started searching on the internet. And uh, like you mentioned, it's out there everywhere, keto and Whole30. Well, I saw those diets and I thought they, they just seemed a little too extreme for me. I had known coworkers and friends in the past who had suffered medical complications from following diets like those. So I figured in my own mind, I could just craft my own. And I just kind of pulled a little bit from keto and a little bit from Whole30 and a little bit from this blogger, a little bit from that influencer and created my own clean, healthy eating because I was scared. I didn't want to develop colorectal cancer like my dad did. I didn't want to die. And uh, I thought that by controlling my diet and by eating just as clean and as pure as I could, that that would be a way I could kind of hold that off. The first few things you said, I was like, oh yeah, I relate to that as someone in recovery from anorexia. But then when you started talking about the concern for your health, that's where the big difference I think lies. Not for everyone who suffers with anorexia and other eating disorders, but definitely for me and other people I know, it was almost the opposite of trying to be healthy. It was deliberately to be as unwell as possible and really not striving for wellness. So I think that's a big difference here, although, like I said, it's not necessarily what everyone with anorexia goes through. But then I had a similar sort of experience in the very, very early days when I was really young and I thought it's good to be healthy it's good to limit certain foods it's good to bulk up on clean items and that's where it starts and it doesn't start there for a lot of people and then twist and change in so many different ways until you have different motivations I guess you've already kind of answered my next question of did it overlap with any other eating disorders whether you had fluctuated between different experiences and different presentations. Yeah, and I, I did. Uh, I look back at my uh, journey and it, it was really two decades worth of um, disordered eating and a, an unhealthy relationship with food. And I do think there were times throughout that period where I kind of went towards anorexia, maybe a little bit more on the spectrum than orthorexia, because I was more concerned about losing weight and keeping it off for body image. And I think in those instances, it was more about the calories in and the calories out. And that's kind of where the obsession with exercise came in. And um, I think those tendencies might have been a little bit more towards anorexia. But where I really kind of hit rock bottom was when I progressed into orthorexia, because that's when I was just suddenly cutting out all of these foods. But in my head, I thought I was doing the right thing. 
And even those around me, my friends and family, they applauded, they complimented me on my healthy eating. So it was almost to the point where with orthorexia, it's a thief in disguise. You can be suffering from it right out in the open and people can see you and actually not even realize that it's become an obsession of yours and that it's no longer just a diet or just a lifestyle. It is a full-on addiction and obsession. Yeah, I think it's probably such a secretive thing to go through because it's even easier to hide. Eating disorders are generally very secretive, but with orthorexia, it's like you can palm it off as, look, I'm doing what all the doctors say I should be doing. I'm doing what the media says I should be doing. And no one necessarily picks up on the extent you're going to and the distress you've got from this obsession. So thinking about your health, I was wondering if you ever got concerned with potential malnutrition, like did you worry at any point that your health would be affected because of how limited your diet was? Or was it a matter of being sure the whole time you were doing the most healthy thing for your physical well-being? Yeah, I was pretty sure up until maybe about a month before I entered recovery. And uh, that was when it was it was a really hot summer here in Denver. Uh, we had wildfires across the state and it was just record heat. But I spent the entire summer just shivering. I was const- I was under blankets. It hurt to sit. I was developing this joint pain and I could feel just things with my body starting to go the opposite direction of what I wanted. What I thought I was doing was making myself healthier. But in reality, I was starting to feel pretty run down. I was just physically starting to feel miserable. And at about a month out from recovery, that's when I started questioning it a little bit. But I was still just so convinced based upon what I was reading online, that I was following the right path, that this was the path to total health. And I I kind of just brushed it aside thinking maybe this is just my body's way of detoxing itself, of cleaning out. I still really didn't fully see the effects of orthorexia on my body. Yeah, I suppose it's enforced so much through diet culture that there's only one way to be healthy. And that also doesn't consider being mentally healthy as well. So yeah, there's this idea of if you clean eat, you're going to live their healthiest happiest life and it is well clearly not true even to the point where people aren't dangerously obsessed with it I feel like it would still have an impact and on their social lives for example if they've got other friends who are going out for a meal or whatever in pre-covid times and hopefully soon I don't know how Denver is doing covid wise but the UK is still not in a great place yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I was fortunate enough earlier this week to get my vaccine. So hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully we're on our way here in Denver. But yeah, you're right. The social impacts were incredible with this disease because uh, I've always been a very social person. I'm a people person. But as the disease continued to progress and get worse, I started pulling back from my friends and from my coworkers. I suddenly started hating those potlucks at work or group lunches because I didn't want to eat those fatty foods that they were bringing in. I I didn't know the nutrition behind what their recipes were. So those foods scared me. When I would go out with friends, I couldn't even concentrate on the conversation that was happening at the table because I was too obsessed with what I was going to eat. What's the healthiest thing on the menu? Oh gosh, can I have this slice of bread before dinner tonight? 
uh, all of those questions kind of just hounded my brain. And I even remember the rehearsal dinner the night before my wedding. Uh, our friends got us, uh, they surprised us with a chocolate cake from one of our favorite restaurants. And instead of being able to fully enjoy that wonderful moment surrounded by my favorite people on this planet, my mind was stuck in orthorexia's world. And it was just constantly berating me and that feeling of guilt for, for even thinking about eating chocolate cake. But at the same time, I wanted to look appreciative and thank my friends for this kind gesture. So it really played a major factor when it came to to my social aspects. And I think my husband can attest to it too, because we would go on vacation together and I would spend the majority of the vacation on my phone looking at websites and apps to see what the healthiest restaurants are and then researching those restaurants to see what the healthiest menu items were. And it just, I became so obsessed with this with this diet of mine that I couldn't even enjoy the social aspects anymore in my life. All of that rings so true to me. And I think another issue socially is that people can be really contradictive. So someone might see you, you know, kind of a stereotypical idea, oh, ordering a salad. So on one hand, they're just like, oh, you're being so good and you get praised for it. But then on the other hand, at the same, in the same conversation, you can be picked on for being boring or being a killjoy or, you know, making everyone else look bad. And so, yeah, there is, you can get so many reactions from the same people in one go. It's, it's incredible. I, I often, I would get pulled in so many different directions emotionally and mentally while I'd be out with people. I think of one time when, uh, right before our wedding, my family threw us a wedding shower and uh, I had asked my sister to grill up uh, vegetarian sausages because we were no longer eating meat. And the whole family just kind of they ripped on me the whole time, kind of poking fun at it. But then at the same, in the same breath, they were going, well, we don't have the willpower you do. So that's pretty incredible. Good for you. So it was just this mixed bag of emotions. It's like at one point, I feel like I'm being attacked for what I'm doing. And in the other point, I feel like I'm being praised for what I'm doing. Yeah, what you said about willpower is such a buzzword, I think, in diets and eating disorders is that I remember saying when I, you know, with hindsight, I clearly already had signs of an early eating disorder. But I used to say, oh, I, I don't have the willpower to be anorexic. And that is another thing people end up praising, which makes recovery so hard. Because once again, whether it be your peers, or whether it be the media, what you're doing, no matter how dangerous is still painted as the holy grail. Like it's the, it's the, so admirable, having that strength, when you know, now we know that recovery is what takes that willpower. And so you could say, you know, it took so much, eating disorders take so much of you um, and you put so much into them that you can twist that energy around and you can twist that strength around to go towards recovery, but you've really got to want it. Yeah, I think a lot of it with the willpower is it feeds into that guilt that I would feel because if I had a food that was on my quote unquote bad list, I was filled with guilt because I felt like I was letting my friends down. I was letting those around me down who were praising me for my willpower. Uh, it just felt like a moment of weakness. So it wasn't really until I entered recovery when I realized that 
if you are vulnerable, if you let your guard down, that's when you're the strongest because that's when you're facing fear head on and you're, I always say that I'm defeating orthorexia one bite at a time because every bite of those bad foods I take now, that's actually a success rather than a feeling of guilt, which um, has been just the key to my recovery process. So it shows that I can take the willpower I had back uh, when I was committed to orthorexia and now commit that same willpower to my recovery. Yeah, the language around food is huge here, I think, because you talk about the things you assigned as good and bad. And for me, it was more of a safe and unsafe, but, you know, similar lexicon there. But again, these terms are used so widely. And like, you know, I've spent years working in coffee shops. And so I'm so used to customers talking about, oh, I'm going to be so naughty today. Or like, oh, no, I'm being good. I won't have chocolate on my cappuccino, that kind of thing. And at best, it's really annoying because I just don't care. (laughs) I don't care about your diet. Thank you, faithful customer. But on a bad day, that can be really unsettling and potentially triggering even this many years into recovery because like you are reinforcing what kept me unwell and society is reinforcing it and where you talk about you know being open with people is where you're strongest you need to be able to draw boundaries where people have felt able to comment on your diet or comment on your appearance or whatever to tell these people actually no can you not make these comments whether you mean well or not why are we so used to why do we find it so acceptable to make these comments even people we don't know right and that's something that I have tried to be very self-aware of myself uh, since I entered recovery is not commenting on what somebody is eating or what they look like because there is just so much more to us than what we eat or what we look like And I think we oftentimes don't realize the struggles that somebody else could be going through. There are just so many people out there that do have uh, unhealthy relationships with food and unhealthy relationships with body image. And just one little comment, even if it doesn't mean anything bad at all, even if we don't mean anything by it, can still be very hurtful, hurtful and very triggering to someone. So I think we do, we have to be very careful about what we say around people, it's great to be open and honest and to be vulnerable, but at the same time, we cannot be making comments that could um, trigger somebody who is going through a battle like we went through. For sure. And it's also, you know, it is down to the individual because you may be comfortable with people saying something to you that I'm not and vice versa. So it's having that open dialogue with your peers. It is much harder with people that you don't know who still feel like it's okay to make these comments and even comments about themselves as well that can impact you. I remember a common one I got was, oh, if you think you're fat, you must think I'm enormous. And I was like, not really how it works, but also you're essentially shaming yourself. And that's where body positivity and body neutrality become really important because what people say about themselves will reflect onto us and what we think of ourselves and what they must think of our bodies. Like if someone who is similar to you in figure, if they say something bad about themselves, then you think, well, that must apply to me too. Right, right. It's a lot of times um, guilt by association. 
And uh, if somebody else around us is uncomfortable with who they are, it, it can, it can make us, it can make us question ourselves. Just uh, what do they really think of me? What do I really think of me? And uh, you're so right. I, I get so upset now that I've been uh, into recovery when I hear anybody around me say anything negative about themselves, because uh, I think they're all beautiful people. I think they're all amazing people. And um, I just would not want anybody to go through the things that I went through because I know from the outside looking in, uh, I probably looked pretty healthy. It seemed like everything was going pretty well on my end for a long time. And um, I don't think people, people really can understand what's going on behind that curtain, behind that mask that we all kind of hide behind from time to time. That's the thing. It isn't generally not visible to know, like with any mental health problems or any invisible physical ailment, we really can't assume. But eating disorders, especially, I think people think they can assume because surely it's something that you can see, whether it be through someone's body or at least through someone's behavior. But I think we can be quite good at curating this image of, no, I'm fine. Because in some respects, maybe you don't want that intervention. If someone really knew what was happening, they might make you try and change your behavior. And for me, especially, I did not want to change. I was so reliant on my eating disorder. It was such a big part of who I was. And it was something that was mine. It, It was something I was doing for me. And to have that taken away would be terrifying. As horrible as the experience was, I didn't want to get rid of it. So I had to pretend I was okay for as long as possible. So no one tried to steal it from me. Yeah, that was that was the exact same thing with me too. I became that valued me. There that defined who I was was my eating disorder. I found so much value and accomplishment in being able to control my intake the way I was that the thought of somebody taking it away from me made me feel completely useless. Like I had lost all value to myself and to those around me because that was my identity. That was who I was. So uh, yeah, the thought of somebody else trying to take that away from me for a very long time was hard. Even months into recovery, I struggled with that because I kind of felt like I had lost who I was. I had to rediscover who Jason was after I gave up those um, habits that were associated with orthorexia. Yeah, I really relate to all of that. And to be really honest, I've still kind of got that eating disorder part of my identity through my activism and through my campaigning and through this podcast, because it's not something I feel able to let go of. And partially because I'm passionate about it and a lot of change needs to happen. And if I can help instigate the smallest amount of change, that's really important. But also, it's still part of my identity, at least now in a more healthy manifestation, because at least I'm not damaging myself in pursuit of that identity. But it's really hard to let go of. And I've known other people in recovery who, once they are well enough, and they're they're out of treatment and stuff, they just want to leave that part of their lives behind and where possible not think about it and I'm talking about eating disorders all the time so it's like it's something that I've still on my belt I guess yeah yeah that when you said that it kind of clicked with me too because uh my husband and I talk about this how how I still talk about my eating disorder so much because I've launched orthorexia bites and because I've become such an advocate for eating disorders and for mental health 
And it's, for me, it's very therapeutic. It's, it helps me to know that I can still share this part of me and that I can do good with it because it did bad for so long. I feel like I'm taking that negative situation and I'm making something good out of it because if I can help just one other person out there reclaim their lives like I've been able to over the last couple months, uh, then it was all totally worth it. I would go through that that dark period all over again, just to make sure somebody else wouldn't have to. Yeah, absolutely. It's just what you've been through wasn't in vain if you can do something. And it's amazing to be able to touch other people's lives, whether it be in a not so obvious way or a massive impact. But I try to also think, what have I gained from that bad experience? And I think I've gained compassion and empathy and almost like an enthusiasm almost that I might not have had had I not experienced my eating disorder so I think it's nice to think as much as we want to help other people think of the what positive aspects we have gained from it so we don't get weighed down thinking oh I wasted so much time and energy um, and what did I gain from it we've grown as people from it as corny as that sounds yeah we, we really have um you you know that when you said compassion I gained so much compassion for myself And for those around me, I feel like I can be a better friend, a better husband, a better brother now that I've been through everything I've been through because I've been able to develop that empathy and I I have the compassion for other people. And uh, just one other thing that I think has been incredible and that I've gained through the course of my eating disorder is I've been so fortunate to meet so many great people out there. Uh, who are the mental health advocates and the eating disorder advocates who have stories that are similar to mine or similar to yours. And it's just, it's a great community. So it's good to know that I'm not alone. And uh, it's good to know that it's okay not to be okay sometimes. So those are all, those are all some great things that I've gained as a result of this eating disorder. Absolutely. I think that's a really great thing that you mentioned there about community. And I have a lot of friends mostly online who I know through eating disorder campaigning and campaigning about mental illness in general and yeah although I think of these people all the time and I interact with them all the time I didn't consider it a gain from my illness so I'm really glad you said that because that's given me a new perspective on that too um I've gained people and contact and yeah it's especially at the moment, the the more people you can stay in contact with and interact with when we are so limited in our, in how we can socialize. That's yeah. Yeah, Can't believe I hadn't really considered it in that way. Yeah. During the pandemic, the first couple months, I was just really struggling because I was missing that human contact that just connecting with people. And uh, when I came to terms with the eating disorder, and then when I I launched the blog. It's just, it's made being at home, being away from my friends a little bit easier because I'm able to connect with people, even if it is virtually, just to be able to have a conversation like we're having right now, or just to be able to send somebody a DM on Twitter. It's, it's just an incredible connection. And it, it just makes this isolation that we have to go through a little bit more bearable and a little bit easier. So as with every episode, we've kind of gone off on tangents and stuff. That's the natural way of conversation. That's exactly what I want the podcast to be, just a conversation for people to listen to. Um, But to kind of look at some of the other questions I wrote down, this is another one you've pretty much answered already, but I'll put it out there just in case you've got anything else to add to it. 
was there any concern over your appearance and how that related to your restriction? Yes, there was. So I had mentioned earlier that uh, I was overweight as a child and I had lost that weight when I was in high school. But while I was overweight, I was bullied on and picked on all the time. So those kind of insecurities, those doubts lingered in my mind for the rest of my, into adulthood, you could say. Uh, I just never felt manly enough. I never felt like I had enough muscle or I always felt like I was too jiggly there, too jiggly there at this point. And um, it got to a point where I was scared to take my shirt off anywhere. We would go to a the beach and I would keep my shirt on. And um, at night I used to sleep without my shirt. And suddenly I started wearing it as uncomfortable as it was for me because I just, I was scared to see myself in the mirror. And some of it had to do with body image. Some of it, I didn't want to be perceived as a, as a letdown, as a failure to that diet that I had committed myself to and defined myself by. But another part of it was I would see uh, a bigger Jason in the mirror, I would see a couple extra pounds here or there and equate that to being unhealthy. And my mind would immediately start racing to heart disease and to cancer and to those health complications that I think were part of orthorexia because I wasn't losing the weight to lose the weight. I was losing the weight to be healthy and to be as clean as possible so I could live longer. So there were a lot of body image issues associated with my uh, disease. This is where, well, an example of where fat phobia comes into play and all of the false associations with fatness that we don't want to be perceived as lazy or, or as even unintelligent. These ideas that ridiculous stigmas that people in larger bodies have associated with them, all of these negative connotations that are, of course, not true. And even if we know that, and would never tell other people that, oh, you are this size, therefore this, you, these adjectives describe you. That's where they still, we still apply them to ourselves. And I still, you know, I'm not big. Well, I know rationally I'm not because of the size clothes I buy and whatever, but I do worry, especially because my body has changed a lot in the last six, seven years that, you know, earlier on in my recovery, when I, my weight wasn't underweight but it was also lower than it is now and whether people's um, opinions of me have changed because of the size I am now which again isn't big in the great scheme of things but it is for me and like I've just been I've been furloughed off work for three months because of the pandemic and I went back yesterday and I started thinking oh god these people haven't really seen me in three months do I look any different and what will they think if I do look different and what associations will they have with that there's also the fact that, you know, and I'm not an expert on this, but I've started listening to a podcast by Health at Every Size um, nutritionist rather than the kind of nutritionists who tell you not to eat this, that and the other. And yeah, the figures about ill health because of size, when a lot of the time size is almost inherited, there is a generic, a genetic predisposition. You are going to be, you're going to have that set range. And for some people, it's low. And for some people, it's not. And that's not to say that you can't be healthy and active and live a fulfilling long life just because you're bigger than average. Yeah, it, it, I've been fortunate enough that with the nutritionist that I've been working with in my recovery, 
that she's seen me more than just that number on the scale or just what the scale says. Uh, what I have to weigh in on every couple of weeks uh, actually suggests what my optimal body weight should be. And now as we've approached it, we're realizing that machine knows nothing. Uh, my body is going to be the weight it's going to be regardless of what any machine says it should be. And I think it, it just speaks volumes to how we are all individuals and it is genetics that um, I'm, I might carry more weight down in my legs than some people do or other people might carry more and say their arms than other people do. We're all just different. So um, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean we're unhealthy or we're doing something wrong or that we're a failure. It's just the way our bodies are built. Yep. And we don't get to decide that. <laughs> You know, you can do all the workouts in the world to try and shrink one area or gain in another area, but there's a, there's a very limited amount of control we have over that because our, our bodies are the way they are and will have tendencies that's individual to each of us. And you can see similarities, you can get an idea of your genetic predisposition by looking at your family. And so the way I, you know, I think, oh, why don't I have the same body as I did when I was a teenager before I developed my eating disorder? It's just like, for one thing, I was a child. And now I look at my mum, I look at my older sister, and I'm very similar in weight distribution to them. And it's just like, as uncomfortable as I am, and as much as I think, oh, I've let myself go, actually looking at my family, this is probably where my body wants to be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I was just in my head, my the images of my uncles and my dad and stuff flashed before my eyes. And that is exactly the, where my body is heading uh, as it continues its west restoration through recovery. Uh, that seems to be where my body is meant to be as well. And I can only advise to you and anyone else going through changes in their body through recovery is that change can sometimes feel very fast. But also, if things change over the course of a few years, that's okay as well. And that is natural because bodies do change a bit with age. And, you know, as time goes on, our living situations change, our jobs change. And all of these things, you know, can have some impact. And so if you, like I said, I'm nearly seven years into my recovery uh, and my weight restoration, you know, mainly happened in the first couple of years. But I have gained weight since. Um, and that's probably come to the fact that when you're 28, you don't have the same body as when you were 22, mm -hmm. um, which is hard enough to accept still. But yeah. yeah, it's okay if your body changes later on in your recovery too. Right. And I know it can be very challenging for some people out there when they have to go up a size in clothing. And uh, I actually just posted about this the other day. Uh, I went to try on all my shorts as summertime's come in here, and uh, none of them fit me. They were shorts that I had bought at the height of my uh, eating disorder, and that would have caused me great anxiety. The thought of having to go to the store and buy, first of all, I don't like clothes shopping anyway, but having to go and get clothes that are one, two, maybe even three size bigger than what I used to wear. And now I am celebrating that because that is just a sign of how far I've come, how far I've come, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally as well, where I can accept my body now for the way that it, it's going to look, the way that it should look. And uh, I don't think that there should be any hesitation, any anxiety for anybody out there 
who has to go out and buy some new clothes, uh, take advantage of it, celebrate that. Uh, there's no need for the anxiety. I am a keen shopper. So when my body change, I find if I don't fit into certain clothes, I like, you know, like, you know, again, coming up to summer, even has my body changed since last summer? I don't weigh myself. So I can't use that as a measurement because that's just a big no for me. There's no way I can weigh myself and be emotionally fine afterwards, regardless of whether I'm up, down or the same. So yeah, I'm just like, oh, are my jeans that I bought last summer going to fit me this summer? And I do get really worried and it is triggering when I try something on and it doesn't fit the same way as it used to. But then I have got that little bonus of now I've got an excuse to buy more stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> which doesn't apply to everyone. Like you said, you don't like clothes shopping, but that's a little silver lining for me at least. Right. Well, I'll just send you to do all my clothes shopping for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've talked about being in, you know, recovery and it's, it, you know, relatively it's the earlier days for you because, you know, you talked about um, your wedding rehearsal only being a couple of years ago. Um, and in the great scheme of things, that's not a long time ago and you were struggling at that point um, and you're still working with the nutritionist and whatever. So what prompted you to make this change, considering you didn't even realize there was something particularly wrong where what was the turning point so last summer my husband and I made just a quick little weekend trip to get out of town uh, uh, up to Wyoming and while we were up there uh, I struggled to find a restaurant for us to eat at one night for dinner because with the pandemic going on we wanted to eat outside and be safe so our options were very limited and we stumbled across this place Uh, I saw a hummus platter that I was going to order for my uh, entree And I had just made a small suggestion to my husband, oh, I hope that they can substitute the pita bread out for fresh vegetables because pita bread was one of those foods that caused so much anxiety for me. So when I asked the waiter, he said that it wasn't possible to do the substitution, that they didn't have any fresh vegetables for the platter. So I freaked out. I said, I just wasn't going to eat tonight. I was just kind of done. I I just shut down at the table. And in that moment, my husband called me out. He said he acknowledged that he had seen a lot of pain from my past and a lot of just fear around food suddenly. And he said, "Maybe, maybe I needed to talk to somebody about it. And it was in that moment, hearing somebody else, somebody that I loved with every inch of my body, telling me that I needed help, that maybe maybe there was something going on, that I was finally able to recognize that there was something going on. And I made the decision to call my doctor the following week who uh, made the diagnosis. At that point, it was just an unspecified eating disorder because uh, unfortunately, orthorexia is not uh, a formal diagnosis yet but uh, he was able to diagnose me with that, with OCD and anxiety. And it was in those moments that I realized I did need help, that I was facing something a lot bigger than I ever realized. And um, I I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that I didn't even know what orthorexia was at that point. So there was still that doubt in my head that I really had an eating disorder. I thought it could just be some weird relationship with food. But I just wanted to escape it, whatever it was at that point, whether it was an eating disorder or just a weird relationship. I was tired of living by all these food food rules. I just wanted to take my life back. Yeah, another thing. I think it's great that they gave you, you got that diagnosis, uh, even though, you know, it was unspecified because it's the same over here in that orthorexia is not 
an official diagnosis. It's still under otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. But the fact that it was still recognised because so often doctors don't see it. One, men get told they can't have an eating disorder either way. And two, that just because it wasn't the typical presentation of what people think of when they hear the term eating disorder, it was still recognised in you and the impact it was having on you mentally and physically. So I think that must have been really positive. It was really difficult and confusing because you hadn't considered it could possibly be an ED but just being recognized I think is a is huge um, in the early stages of recovery because it's been acknowledged that something is not right and that change needs to happen and you're not imagining everything right I just assumed everybody else around me had these same fears and anxieties around food because like we said you people make comments all the time oh I'm going to be naughty tonight and have this or I'm going to be bad and have that tonight and I just figured oh everybody else is probably going through it too it's just maybe with me it's a little bit worse so I didn't really think it was that big of an issue and then yeah when the doctor said that it was just kind of like a gigantic light bulb went off in my head and I realized, okay, I'm going to wave the right flag and uh, get the help that I need. So after you had that diagnosis and you felt like you wanted to change, wanting to change for me was a matter of I'd have light bulb moments of wanting to change, but most of the time I didn't. And I kind of had to grip onto those moments of wanting to change as fleeting as they were what steps did you take after you had that meeting with your doctor so for me um getting help was almost harder than admitting I needed help Uh, I was diagnosed and right after the diagnosis I asked my doctor okay what's next what should I do next and he said I should just go home and google some research resources online that he really didn't know exactly who I needed to talk to or how I should go about my next steps. So that kind of, that raised a red flag for me. I found that very odd that my doctor didn't even know where I should go next. I was like, if I had a a broken arm or something, you'd know where to send me, but um, he had no idea where to send me for mental illness. So I went online and I started researching And uh, when you search male eating disorder, uh, recovery and treatment, not a lot comes up. Uh, I felt very isolated, very alone because you go to the websites and you see the stereotypical images and it's usually young females suffering from anorexia or bulimia and none of those fit me. Uh, First of all, I was a male and secondly, I wasn't facing anorexia or bulimia. I was facing this other eating disorder. So it, it really made me question whether or not I was fighting an eating disorder. Yeah, I got the formal diagnosis, but at the same time, why couldn't I find any help out there for me? So it it was just, it was a very frustrating process at first and very disheartening. And um, I reached out to probably 20, 25 therapists before I finally was able to make that connection with somebody. And I can see how so many people can get discouraged when they first reach out for help because it wasn't easy for me. I just had to kind of put my head down and be committed to it and uh, never give up the search for help. And I was fortunate enough to finally connect with a therapist who he was upfront with me. He didn't know much about eating disorders himself. He hadn't worked with very many clients who had eating disorders, but he was willing to grow and learn alongside of me. And I think that was the key. 
because I had somebody kind of discovering things about eating disorders and about what I was going through as I was coming to terms with the very same things. So we could grow alongside of each other. But there were, I was still hesitant those first couple consultations with him. And I just told myself, I have to trust the process. I just have to hang in there. He wants what's best for me. I want what's best for me. So we've got to work together. I've got to take his advice. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I hung in there because uh, it's really paid off. Yeah, I think it's sadly quite a universal experience of going to a doctor and then if they recognize an eating disorder is one thing but knowing what resources there are to help you and also whether you are the right level of unwell to receive that help and obviously we between us well we have very different experiences of healthcare um because well the uk is kind of seems to be heading in the direction of the u.s system of healthcare which is terrifying to me um because how on earth could I ever afford healthcare (laughs) I've lived with it 28 years for free and granted it's not been great but I've you know have received a lot of treatment and not had to worry about the cost of it so yeah I think a lot of the time like general practitioners don't know what else there is and even within their own trust they won't necessarily know if there's specialist eating disorder service and you have to rely on charities a lot of the time because you don't have the right criteria to be treated unless you can pay for private treatment which is the case for quite a lot of people if they have the finances to go to go through with that um i know in the us you've got neda as your eat disorder charity and then we've got beat over here and especially during the pandemic like beats demand for support on the chat rooms and the individual counseling and stuff have just rocketed and what's available in healthcare has not been adjusted and the funding hasn't been adjusted to deal with that. Right. And that's why, that's why I've made it such a point to get my story out there and to just help other people because I am, I am not a professional. I cannot be substituted for professional help, but I just want people to know that just because they reach out once and that help turned them away or wasn't available to keep trying, to keep going back because you're worth it, you deserve it. Um, I had an issue with getting my nutritionist. It was very difficult to find a nutritionist then to work with. And uh, we ended up having to go outside of our insurance. And it it was just so much money that when she gave me that initial quote, I just flung myself on the bed in tears. And I just started crying and I said, maybe I'm not worth this help. Maybe it's just too much. Maybe I'm not fixable. And my husband just reassured me that I am, I'm worth it and that I deserve this help. And uh, we've had to put things on hold. You you know, we wanted to buy our first home and to do all these things. And we've had to put some of those things on hold just to allow me to recover. And I'm so grateful that we did. But at the same time, it, it can feel a little burdensome to know that Uh, you have to take care of yourself before anything else. For sure. Yeah, putting time and energy into something and having to delay other goals. It can be really hard to accept that, but how much would you have enjoyed attaining those other goals if you'd stayed unwell? You could have got your first house together, but would you have been happy in that house if you were still struggling with your eating disorder? So it's it's really important to prioritize it because the more you put off your recovery, 
the harder it's going to be, which is another reason why early intervention is so important, which isn't, you know, isn't easily attainable, sadly. So, yeah, you can put yourself first and you can put your recovery first. Other things can wait, but your health can only wait for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I, I am so fortunate that we had that conversation last summer on our vacation because once I did talk to my doctor about it, he pointed out a lot of signs that, you know, my body was starting, things were starting to deteriorate pretty rapidly. And um, it could have been a very different outcome had I not sought the help when I finally did. And it's the irony of you were doing your best to be healthy and stay well, but at the end of the day, it was still taking its toll on you physically as well as mentally. Yeah, I put a, I put a quote on the blog when I first launched it and it said, I was literally killing myself to live longer. And that was a realization I came to a couple months into recovery while journaling that I thought what I was doing was extending my life. But in actuality, I wasn't really living the life I was living and I was shortening the life that I did have. Yeah, shortening it and shrinking it as well. Cause the time, you know, all that time you were focused on food and your body and stuff like that. Oh, you've obviously all come a long way and there is gonna be more work to do as there always is, but you've established a really good foundation, I think, for your recovery. What advice do you have for other people who are struggling with, you know, eating disorders in general, but especially orthorexia? For me, the biggest piece of advice that I can give anybody out there is to be authentic and to be vulnerable, to allow yourself to have those tough conversations. If you feel like suddenly food is becoming an obsession and you can't think about anything else, talk to somebody, just tell somebody what's going on, whether that's a close family member or a friend or a colleague, just reach out and tell somebody. Uh, don't fear being weak. Don't fear looking like a failure because you're not following the diet any longer. Uh, you're doing what's best for you. And I wish I would have reached out a lot earlier on than I did. So that's my one big key is to just be authentic, to be real, to sit there and really evaluate what, what your relationship with food is. I spent a lot of time sitting on my couch watching TV, but I really wasn't watching TV. In my head, I was meal planning and I was thinking about the grocery list to make sure it was um, as clean and as healthy as possible. And those were all just little signs right there that I was starting to lose touch with my own life because I was, be I was becoming obsessed with orthorexia. Orthorexia was starting to take control. So if you sit back and you see, see yourself doing those same, same things, speak up, be vulnerable, be authentic, and uh, there is help out there. You are not alone. I think it's worth noting as well that um, to have an eating disorder, you don't necessarily have to be undereating or overeating in terms of calories or energy. It's about your relationship with the food and how it makes you feel. So someone could be eating adequately calorie wise but they can still have a really restrictive relationship with food because what they feel able to eat to consume that energy so someone may think oh well I'm not eating too little and I'm not binge eating and I'm not losing weight so this, this means I don't have a problem or this means I don't deserve any support they're not qualifiers 
Exactly, exactly. And uh, it's it's very interesting you bring that up because my husband and I were talking about it early on in recovery. And he mentioned uh, several points throughout our relationship where he thought I was doing great. And he'd say, oh, why don't, if you could just go back to living the way that you were living back then, uh, you'd be healthy again. And I had to point out to him that even though I looked healthy, even though I was eating enough calories and not losing weight, that eating disorder was still there at that time. Those voices were still in my head. And uh, to this day, even in recovery, while my body weight is restoring and while from the outside, I might look like the epitome of health again, I still have an eating disorder. I am still fighting that voice inside of my head. So even though I'm eating more than enough calories every day now to sustain my weight and to gain weight, I still have to battle negative thoughts around food on a daily basis with every single meal. So it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, how there's a lot more going on on the inside, that an eating disorder is a mental, it's an emotional um, disorder as well as, a, as the physical effects that it can take on the body. Another thing you just mentioned about your husband saying, if you could go back to this time and recovery isn't going back, because if you go back, if, if I went back to my relationship with food when I was a child and have that now, that child still went on to develop anorexia. And even if that um, example your husband gave you at that time was well, something still happened between that time and now for things to deteriorate. So recovery isn't a matter of going back to who you were pre-eating disorder, but it's to move away from it and learn from it potentially. But it's purely going forward rather than reminiscing about life beforehand and trying to return to that. Right. What's been what's been kind of cool for me in recovery has been I've been able to reconnect with parts of myself that I really loved before the eating disorder that I kind of lost touch with over the course of the eating disorder but I get to bring it into the present day. I'm not going back to the kid that I was anymore because now I'm an adult or I'm not going back to those same feelings I used to hold about myself back then, but I'm able to pull the good things from my past and bring them to the future. And to me, that's been an incredible gift because it really shows the growth that I'm making and uh, it gives me hope for the future. I think that's a really beautiful thing to end on that is so hopeful and so succinct and it just it's that blend of who you were and who you can be coming together and yeah sometimes talking about eating disorders and recovery can end up really cheesy but at this point I don't care because <laughs> if there's if if that's how best you can explain it what's wrong there's nothing wrong with that and I think that's a great place for a really nice high note to end on and so thank you so much this has been so interesting and enlightening for me talking about an eating disorder I'm not as familiar with and you know seeing our differences and our common ground and all I can do is thank you over and over again for this um this has been really great yeah, and I thank you for this just incredible opportunity and for helping to raise awareness about uh, orthorexia, because I do think there are a lot of people out there who might not have full-blown orthorexia like I do, but they still have orthorexic thoughts. And just even being able to overcome those uh, is an incredible achievement. So I thank you for bringing light to this and for all the work that you do. And it's just kind of goes back to what I said earlier too, 
uh, it's great to know that we're not alone and that we have this amazing community that we're building together. It's kind of a shame I don't have my camera on because I'm smiling really wide because this is just, yeah, I've really enjoyed this. And like like you said, it's nice to feel, it's good to feel part of something, mm-hmm. um, especially now with the podcast reaching out. So, you know, this is, what did I say, episode seven. And already I've had, you're my second guest from the US. I've had one guest from Canada. Um, I've got a guest lined up from Australia. So it's just amazing how far this is reaching. Even if I don't have that big an audience right now, it's still reaching people thousands of miles away. Yeah. And that's that's a great feeling, that connectivity, despite the physical distance. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Because I think you launched the podcast shortly after I launched my blog. So we're both still really new. But um, it is. It's an incredible feeling. Uh, we might not get thousands and thousands of likes when we post something, but it's just that one like, and that's all it takes to really make a difference in somebody's life. So um, it's, it's pretty cool how far, how far you're reaching right now. 